disclaimer. The information presented in any of the Demand Our Access podcast episodes on the Demand Our Access website or otherwise shared in conjunction with or association through the Demand Our Access project is expressly not individual legal advice. Applying the law depends on the circumstances and events that comprise every situation. Since legal advice is fact-specific, nothing about the Demand Our Access project can provide an individual, a group of individuals, or an organization legal advice. Introduction This is the second part of our two-part look at Title I of the Americans with Disabilities Act, Title I. In the first episode dedicated to Title I, I covered important definitions under Title I. Some of the concepts discussed in this episode may be easier to understand if you have some familiarization with the material from the previous episode. Still, you should learn important things from this episode even if you did not review the previous episode. As I said last time, there is no way to cover this kind of material without using words like impaired that many of us in the disability community don't use. I'm using words like impaired here because those are the words used in the law. Whether we like it or not, when communicating about the law, we are required to use the terms that are outdated. Maybe someday the ADA will be revisited and the updated law will provide for meaningful enforcement and be written in modern language. For now, we have to discuss the law as it has been written. Our discussion is based on the rules defining compliance with Title I as set forth by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, in 29 CFR Section 1630. To make this presentation easier to follow, I am not going to mention the exact citations to different sections of the Code of Federal Regulations. As always, I will link to the individual sections when this episode is posted to the Demand Our Access website. In listening to the previous episode, I decided that the term covered entity, while used in the Code of Federal Regulations, may be too confusing. Important Concepts Under Title I 
discrimination prohibited. It is unlawful for an employer to discriminate on the basis of disability against a qualified individual in regard to the following. 1. Recruitment, advertising, and job application procedures. 2. Hiring, upgrading, promotion, award of tenure, demotion, transfer, layoff, termination, right of return from layoff, and rehiring. 3. Rates of pay or any other form of compensation and changes in compensation. 4. Job assignments, job classifications, organizational structures, position descriptions, lines of progression and seniority lists. 5. Leaves of absence, sick leave, or any other leave. 6. Fringe benefits available by virtue of employment, whether or not administered by the employer. 7. Selection and financial support for training, including apprenticeships, professional meetings, conferences, and other related activities and selection for leaves of absence to pursue training. 8. Activities sponsored by an employer, including social and recreational programs. 9. Any other term, condition, or privilege of employment. The term discrimination includes, but is not limited to, the acts described in 29 CFR section 1630.4 through 29 CFR section 1630.13. Even though I won't mention those citations, I will now, hopefully, help you begin to become familiar with the types of disability discrimination discussed by the EEOC in those sections of the Code of Federal Regulations. Limiting, Classifying, and Segregating It is unlawful for an employer to limit, segregate, or classify a job applicant or employee in a way that adversely affects his or her employment opportunities or status on the basis of disability. Contractual or other arrangements. It is unlawful for an employer to participate in a contractual or other arrangement or 
relationship that has the effect of subjecting the employer's own qualified applicant or employee with a disability to discrimination prohibited by Title I. Contractual or other relationship defined. The phrase contractual or other arrangement or relationship includes, but is not limited to, a relationship with an employment or referral agency, labor union including collective bargaining agreements, an organization providing fringe benefits to an employee of the employer, or an organization providing training and apprenticeship programs. Application. This section applies to an employer with respect to its own applicants or employees, whether the employer offered the contract or initiated the relationship, or whether the employer accepted the contract or acceded to the relationship. Any employer is not liable for the actions of the other part or parties to the contract, which only affects that other partners, employees, or applicants. Standards, criteria, or methods of administration. It is unlawful for an employer to use standards, criteria, or methods of administration which are job-related and consistent with business necessity and that 1. have the effect of discriminating on the basis of disability or 2. that perpetuate the discrimination of others who are subject to the common administrative control. And so basically what they're saying there is you can't use administrative processes that discriminate against people with disabilities. Relationship or association with a person with a disability. It is unlawful for an employer to exclude or deny equal jobs or benefits to or otherwise discriminate against a qualified individual because of the known disability of an individual with whom the qualified individual is known to have a family, business, social, or other relationship or association. And where I've heard of this happening, and this is this is pretty sad, but it's just, again, being real, is if an employer knows, for example, that a spouse of a person 
has a disability that may require extensive health coverage. Uh, some employers have tried to demote or not hire people because they don't want their health insurance to have to cover the expensive spouse. Um, yes, that stuff does happen, and yes, it is illegal. <laughs> Making reasonable accommodations. And this is the most important part of the presentation that we've had uh, so far. It is unlawful for an employer not to make reasonable accommodations to the known physical or mental limitations of an otherwise qualified applicant or employee with a disability unless such employer can demonstrate that the accommodation would impose an undue hardship on the operation of its business. 1. It is unlawful for an employer to deny employment opportunities to an otherwise qualified job applicant or employee with a disability based on the need of such an employer to make reasonable accommodations to such individuals' physical or mental impairments. 2. An employer shall not be excused from the requirements of this part because of any failure to receive technical assistance authorized by Section 507 of the ADA, including any failure in the development or dissemination of any technical assistance manual authorized by that act. So what that means is they can't say the EEOC didn't give them enough guidance. Three. An individual with a disability is not required to accept an accommodation, aid, service, opportunity, or benefit which such qualified individual chooses not to accept. However, if such individual rejects a reasonable accommodation, aid, service, opportunity, or benefit that is necessary to enable the individual to perform the essential functions of the position held or desired and cannot, as a result of the rejection, perform the essential functions of the position, the individual will not be considered qualified. So, Basically, if you don't accept uh, what the employer deems reasonable, they don't have to uh, accommodate you. <laughs> Four, an employer is required, absent undue hardship, to provide a reasonable accommodation to an otherwise qualified individual whom meets the definition of a disability under the actual disability prong or the record of a disability prong under the definition of disability. Uh, 
someone who is regarded as having a disability but does not actually have one is not entitled to reasonable accommodations under Title I. Qualification standards, tests, and other selection criteria. It is unlawful for an employer to use qualification standards, employment tests, or other selection criteria that screen out or tend to screen out an individual with a disability or a class of individuals with disabilities on the basis of disability unless that standard test or other selection criteria as used by the employer is shown to be job-related for the position in question and is consistent with business necessity. Qualification standards and tests related to uncorrected vision. Notwithstanding the typical rule that people whose vision can be corrected to the normal range through the use of standard eyeglasses and contact lenses are not covered by Title I, an employer shall not use qualification standards, employment tests, or other selection criteria based on an individual's uncorrected vision unless the standard test or other selection criteria as used by the employer is shown to be job-related for the position in question and is consistent with business necessity. An individual challenging an employer's application of a qualification standard, test, or other criterion based on uncorrected vision need not be a person with a disability, but must be adversely affected by the application of the standard, test, or other criterion. So all they're saying there is that normally, as I talked about last time under Title I, uh, the use of eyeglasses, normal eyeglasses and contact lenses does not qualify you. But here, if the uncorrected vision can be shown by the applicant or employee to be not job-related, you can challenge it, even if you're not a person who qualifies as a person with a disability, but you have uh, you're impacted personally by the corrected vision exam. Administration of tests. It is unlawful for an employer to fail to select and administer tests concerning employment in the most effective manner to ensure that when a test is administered to a job applicant or employee who has a disability that impairs sensory, manual, or speaking skills, that the test results accurately reflect 
the skills, aptitude, or whatever other factor of the applicant or employee that the test purports to measure rather than reflecting the impaired sensory, manual, or speaking skills of such employee or applicant except where such skills are the factors that the test purports to measure. Now, in regular person terms, all that is really saying is that if an employer has to run a test for an applicant or an employee to prove your ability to do something, the test can't penalize you based on your ability to speak or see or lift things unless the employer can show that the ability to speak or see or lift things uh, that's being measured is actually related to the job. So if you're applying for a job that requires heavy lifting, then it's probably reasonable for the employer to make sure you can lift a certain amount of weight. Um, but if there are other ways for you to do the job without having to lift those things and you can show that it's not job-related, then that kind of test would be probably seen as violating the law. Retaliation and coercion. It is unlawful to discriminate against any individual because that individual has opposed any act or practice made unlawful by Title I or because that individual made a charge, testified, assisted, or participated in any manner in an investigation proceeding or hearing to enforce any provision contained in Title I. So this is a really important one because a lot of people say, I can't file anything with the EEOC because my employer will penalize me for doing it. If the employer does retaliate against you for enforcing your rights under Title I, the employer is in a lot more trouble than they are in for just violating the law because now they've violated the law twice. They've discriminated against you and they've retaliated against you. So depending on your personality, <laughs> you might be glad for some retaliation uh, because it would frankly increase your chances of getting a, a better settlement. Coercion interference or intimidation. It is unlawful to coerce, intimidate, threaten, harass, or interfere with any individual in the exercise or enjoyment of or because that individual aided or encouraged any other individual in the exercise of any right granted or protected by Title I. So again, this is just reinforcing the idea that 
even if you don't file a charge yourself, but you testify in support of someone else's charge, uh, you are protected. Um, they cannot harass you or intimidate you because you did that. Medical examinations and inquiries. The topic of medical examinations and inquiries is very technical. For this section, I'm going to leave the Code of Federal Regulations and try to explain medical examinations and inquiries under Title I as simply as I can explain them. In trying to keep this explanation simple, I'm not going to cover everything that could be covered here. Instead, I'm going to provide what I think is the information most people need in most situations. If you are interested, the information about medical examinations and inquiries is set forth in 29 CFR section 1630.13 and 29 CFR section 1630.14. Prohibited medical examinations and inquiries. There are three times when the question of medical examinations and inquiries arise. Before a job offer is made, after a job offer has been made, and once someone is working for an employer. Number one, an employer may not ask or require a job applicant to take medical examination before making a job offer. Let me just say that again. They cannot ask you to take a medical exam before offering you a job. An employer cannot make any pre-offer inquiry about a disability or the nature or severity of a disability. So again, in the pre-offer, they can't really ask you about your disability. An employer may ask questions about your ability to perform specific job functions and may, with certain limitations, ask a person with a disability to describe or demonstrate how they will perform those functions. And there, between the last two bullet points, is one of the issues that comes up a lot. And that is, they can't ask you about your disability, but they can ask you to demonstrate how you'll do things, and then they can decide how they feel about how you did the task or what you said you would do about the task if it were assigned to you. And so there is a way for them, if they want to, to get around a lot of this in the law without actually violating the law. An employer may condition a job offer 
on the satisfactory result of a post-offer medical examination or inquiry if it is required of all entering employees in the same job category. Now, let's be very clear about what that means. They can only make a job offer conditional if every single person in that category of work hired by that employer is subjected to the same kind of medical examination and or medical inquiry that you as a person with a disability is being asked to be subjected to. Post-offer exams and inquiries. A post-offer medical examination or inquiry does not have to be job-related and consistent with business necessity. If an individual is not hired because of a post-offer medical examination or inquiry reveals a disability, the reasons for not hiring them must be job-related and consistent with business necessity. The employer must also show that no reasonable accommodation was available that would enable the person with a disability to perform the essential job functions or that the accommodations would impose an undue hardship. A post-offer medical examination may disqualify someone if the employer can demonstrate that the individual would pose a direct threat in the workplace. And I just want to remind everybody that some of these terms, like direct threat, for example, they were defined in the previous episode. So if you want to know more about some of this stuff, you can check out the previous episode. A post-offer medical examination or inquiry may not disqualify someone who is able to perform the essential functions of the job because the employer speculates that the disability poses the threat of future injury. Employee Medical Exams and Inquiries After a person starts work, a medical examination or inquiry of an employee must be job-related and consistent with business necessity. Employers may conduct employee medical examinations where there is evidence of job performance issues or safety problems that the employer reasonably believes is related to a medical condition. Examinations required by other federal laws, so that's another, you know, if, if, for example, the Department of Transportation requires periodic medical exams of truck drivers, then your employer obviously is allowed to do that. Return to work examinations 
when the employer reasonably believes the employee will be unable to do their job may pose a direct threat because of a medical condition. So let's say you've been out on disability for a while and you want to go back to work. The employer can say, you need to take a medical examination to prove that you can still do the job or that having you on the job site now won't pose a direct threat. Voluntary examinations that are part of employee health programs. And that basically means, um, like for example, as a part of my job, I have to take a physical every two years to qualify for a lower health insurance rate. Um, they say that my employer doesn't see my health information, um, but it is a requirement or I can pay uh, a higher premium. Confidentiality. Information from all medical examinations and inquiries must be kept separate from general personnel files. The records from medical examinations and inquiries must be made available only to certain people and under certain conditions. Tests for illegal drugs are not considered medical records under Title I and do not need to be kept confidential in the way that records from medical examinations and inquiries must be kept confidential. Employer defenses. I'm not going to cover employer defenses to charges of disability discrimination. In case you are interested in learning about how Title I imagines employers defending themselves when faced with a charge that they discriminated against someone on the basis of disability, you can visit 29 CFR section 1630.15. Now, I'm done with the prepared written portion of this recording, but uh, I just want to go back and, and make sure that people understand the full breadth of the confidentiality piece. Uh, because this is important. Uh, your records have to be kept confidential. That is true. They cannot be part of a personnel file. Your health records cannot be part of your regular personnel file if they are related to Title I activities. However, uh, there are some instances where that is not true. And and uh, largely, they are limited to situations where a supervisor needs information about a reasonable accommodation. Or if a safety team needs information about someone's disability to potentially help them evacuate a building during an emergency. So, yes, as a general rule, the medical examinations and inquiries have to be kept separate. But there are some circumstances, and you know, in my view, they're, they're pretty reasonable circumstances, where the information has to be shared. But a final thought about Title I that I think is worth throwing out here and maybe has become apparent to folks as we've worked through the material is that 
it's really easy <laughs> for employers if they want to to violate Title I. It sounds good in theory, but you don't have a lot of recourse unless you're able and willing to go to the EEOC. Um, and another thing that I didn't mention that, that's probably worth mentioning before we wrap up the recording is that if you are discriminated, you just can't go out and sue um, under Title I. You have to file with the EEOC, and they have to issue you a right-to-sue letter, or they have to investigate and maybe take on the case themselves. Um, but if you're discriminated against under Title I, you have to start with the EEOC. Um, and that is another way that the law tries to keep people out of court. Um, some people believe that that's a good approach. Some people don't. I think it depends on who's involved in the EEOC at the time. Uh, but I don't want to get too political, so I'm going to leave that there. Um, but this does complete the substantive look at Title I. Um, stay tuned to some more hopefully interesting ways that we may come up with in the next couple of episodes uh, to maybe illustrate these very technical, complicated points and maybe help them be easier for people to understand.